0: Yo, what's up, beautiful people? Okay, asleep over here We'll wake <laughs> over there. It's always amazing to me, the, the dynamics in a room. Um, anyway, I won't waste time with that because we got a lot to cover. But I, what I want to know is this. How am I the only one in the room who knew what swag meant? <laughs> I mean, I'm older than most of y'all in here. I mean, I don't know how. I mean, that, you know why that is? Because I'm Swaggy C. That's why. The, <clears throat> But uh, actually, the reason why that is is because uh, we went over that in the first service, and I learned that for the, I was zero, I was today years old when I learned that swag meant stuff we all get. So y'all have already learned something, this is just like bonus time, but uh, for now on, I want y'all to refer to me as Swaggy C, you know, back in the day, back in the 90s, it was Chili C, but now it's Swaggy C, but um, anyway, no, it's beautiful to be uh, with everyone, you know. Uh, I said in the first. I just want to say this as well here in the second service, which is this. This time that we get with one another and engage with one another to worship together, hear the word of God uh, here present uh, and also online. When we when we do this, there's there's nothing else like this. This is a this is a special time, and I realize we do it from you know from week to week. And oftentimes when we do something and it's part of our reg and our routine, uh, it's easy to lose the sense of specialness that comes with it. But man, uh, there is nothing like God's people coming together, worshiping together, coming to hear the word of God because the Bible says that when we come together, God is in our midst. And so this is a a beautiful time to be together because we're together in God's presence. So why don't we pray? We're going to open up our hearts, allow the Holy Spirit to do what He would like within our hearts. Let's pray that the Word would be encouraging and instructive for us and continue to ask God to bless our time. So Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that we can come together and that you've called us together. Father, I thank you this morning that we are your sons, we are your daughters Father, we so much adore and appreciate your presence. Father, we ask now, Lord, as we look into the Word, that Father, that it would be alive, that it would be active, that you'd use it, Lord God, to encourage us, to strengthen us. Father God, to correct us. But Father, we ask, Lord God, that, it would, that you would plant the seed of your deep in our heart this morning. So Father, we sort of put to the side our worries from last week or our cares that maybe are coming up this week. Because, Father, we ask that you would plant the seed deep, that it would sprout and bear fruit in our lives and also in the lives of others, 30, 60, and 100-fold. So, Father, we thank you, we magnify you, we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, we are looking at Acts chapter 27 this morning, all 44 verses, which means if I preach one minute per verse, that this message is going to be 44 minutes long. I've never preached one minute on any verse in the Bible. So just go ahead, put your arm around your loved one right there. Get comfortable because you're in for the ride. <laughs> now, we're not going to preach all of it, but we're going to focus on uh, the meat of it. And uh, so just to give you some context before we read, I'm going to read part of the chapter. I'll summarize the back half of it. I do want to encourage you to read the whole thing. I time myself reading the whole thing. You know, it will take over six minutes. So I'm going to uh, hit some points on the front end, summarize the back end, and then we're going to dive in uh, uh, to some particular points. And the setting is this, is Paul is jumping on a boat because uh, he is being sent to Rome to testify before Caesar. Um, You know, from the previous chapters that Paul has been on trial. And, uh, you know, as we have gone through the book of Acts here over the last year, you know, I was actually... uh, just blessed as I I was preparing and just thinking about, man, we spent a year in Acts, but it's interesting to see as we get toward the back of the book, how things that have happened earlier in the book, you see coming into play here on the the back end. But um, anyway, so as we know from what we have seen, everywhere where Paul would go to preach, there um, there always be a group of, of, of Jews who would persecute him, follow him from city to city. They would hear that Paul is over there, and so they would leave, they would travel, they would go, they try to stir up the crowd against Paul. Sometimes that would end up in there being, you know, uh, a lot of shouting. Sometimes it progressed to a riot, other times it progressed to Paul being uh, dragged out of the city and stoned. Um, where we are now, Paul has gone to Jerusalem, and even though he knew in going to Jerusalem that imprisonment... And further persecutions and trials awaited him, he was not going to be deterred from that which God called him to do it. As we jump into this, we're going to see that Paul did everything with great intentionality because Paul uh, uh, basically lived his life on assignment by God. So if God called him to do it, he was going to do it. He wasn't going to back, uh, wasn't going to back out of it. And so uh, in Jerusalem, they throw him in jail. They accuse him of all sorts of things. They put him on trial. Uh, he ends up in Caesarea, and he uh, testifies uh, and, and gives a defense about himself there between the, the governors. And then last we saw last week before King Agrippa, but he had appealed to, uh, to testify his case before Caesar. So now he has to go to Rome. So he's a prisoner boarding a boat with other prisoners, um, with a centurion, and they're going to head towards Rome. And this story is about that journey. It's about a 1,500-mile uh, journey by boat. And uh, so they got a long uh, sail ahead of them, and that's what we pick up here in uh, Acts chapter 27 and verse 1. So let's read through. I'll make some comments, and then uh, hopefully we'll get some good stuff out of it as we look into it. All right, verse 1 says this. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort cohort named Julius. And embarking on a a ship of blah, blah. On embarking on a ship, we'll just skip that name. You know, I practiced that thing like 10 times. And now I'm under pressure and I choke. It's like, you know, being at the free throw line and just throwing up a brick. But anyway, uh, embarking on a ship which was about to sail to the ports of the coast, uh, along the coast of Asia, we put to sea uh, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. All right, so uh, when the writer refers here, the writer is Luke, when he refers to we, he's talking about uh, Paul. Luke, who's sort of like the uh, the historian who's been traveling along with Paul, and Aristarchus, who is a longtime companion to Paul, actually was in prison with Paul in Caesarea. Uh, Paul refers to him in later epistles as his companion and fellow prisoner. Uh, Verse 3, the next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. So Paul has some favor from the centurion because Paul is a Roman citizen. And so they had gotten started on their journey. They had done this first leg of about fifty miles. They stopped in Sidon. They let Paul go hang with some friends and let him be ministered to, and come back because once again Paul is a Roman citizen. Verse four. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. Now, as we begin to read through this, I want you to to try to put yourself on this boat. And I want you to experience the harrowing journey that they're getting ready to, uh, uh, to experience. When you read this whole chapter, it would make a fantastic movie. Uh, uh, so they are getting on this uh, boat. They've gone 40 miles without event. But as soon as they get back into the water, immediately the winds begin to blow. And it says they, they put out the sea. But because the winds were contrary, they could not go and progress in the journey the way they had anticipated or desired. Now, how many of y'all understand that that's just how life is? That sometimes you set out on a particular journey, you think you're going, you know, to a, a, a certain destination. And, you know, human nature is we want to get from A to B as quickly as possible and with, as, and with the least amount of, uh, of, of grind and sweat and blood as possible right? And so that's what they're hoping to have here. But immediately it says that the winds were against them. Verse 5, and when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Sicilia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. Now this ship from Alexandria is actually an Egyptian grain freighter. It's a pretty big boat. Um, it is 180 feet long by 50 feet wide, and the whole of the ship sits 33 feet below the surface of the water. So it's sort of a big lumbering grain barge is what it is. And one of the things we need to understand about boats in this era is that they could only sail with the wind. They could not go against the wind. Um, and that's going to be important as we, as we go on. So they're put on this boat from Egypt to sail for Italy. Verse 7, we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off of Sidonus as the winds did not allow us to go further. So the winds are picking up. Before it was, hey, we're progressing, but the winds were against us and we had to chart a different course, but we finally got there. Now it says that they were not able to go any further because of the winds not allowing them to do that. So they sailed under the Lee of Crete off of Salmon. Verse 8, coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, which is, uh, which is near the city of Lycia. Now, just put this in your mind uh, that the, uh, literally the town name Lycia means shaggy. So they're in a port and they're in the Shaggy place, and that doesn't mean that they taught beach dancing. They they just shaggy in. All right, this is a shaggy place, the the island. I don't know what it looks like, but it you know uh, there's not a lot going on there. Uh, it's probably mainly rock, you know, rough terrain, that kind of thing. Just not a place you want to have to hang out in. Verse nine, since much time has passed. All right, so they're in the shaggy place and they're having to stay there because during this time of year the weather can be unpredictable. So they've already been encountering a hard time, right, trying to sail. And so the captain has been just sort of holding out, hoping for better uh, 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 sailing conditions. So since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul has some advice for them. He's saying, sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of cargo in the ship, but also of our lives, but the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owners of the ship than to what Paul said. Now, when it says that much time has passed and it was dangerous because it had gotten past the fast, the fast is referring to the day of atonement. And so it puts the time period of when, of when this is sometime in the early fall, maybe early to mid-October. Uh, and what Paul knew about this time of year, because Paul by this time is an experienced Seamen. And so when when Paul uh, uh, gives his advice, this is not like some preacher sticking his nose into something that he shouldn't know about. It's not, hey, you don't know anything about navigation. Just, you know, know know your lane, stay in your lane. Paul, by this time, has already sailed over 3,000 miles in the very waters where they are. Paul had been in and around there. He's already been shipwrecked a few times. He spent a night and a day in the deep. Paul knows the dynamics of the water. He knows where it's shallow. He knows where the sandbars are. He knows the weather patterns. What he knows about the fall uh, uh, in this area where they are off of Crete is this, is that there are some very unpredictable, strong winds that can come off the land and just make it impossible to sail. So when he tells them, look, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, Paul says that because that's what he has experienced in the past. And he says, It's not only be cargo you lose, but you could possibly lose the ship and also our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Why? Verse 12. This is important. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in. Now, Literally, when it says the, har- uh, the harbor is not suitable, it means it's not ideal. It doesn't mean that they couldn't park the boat there and, say, uh, and, and stay there. It just means it's not ideal. For remember, they're in the shaggy place. <laughs> it's not going to be very entertaining. There's not a whole lot of action Jackson, going on. And the thing is this, is that when the ports shut down for the winter, they're going to be closed from mid-November all the way to mid-March. They got four months. So if they stay there in the shaggy place where there's not a whole lot going on, they're going to be bored stiff for four months with not, uh, with not much to do. So they want to go ahead and try to move up uh, of the coast a little bit. And it says this. And because the harbor is not suitable to spend the winter, the majority decided, and that's where you always get in trouble, the majority decided to put out the sea from there on the chance That somehow they could reach Phoenix, which is a harbor of Crete that faces both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. So, Phoenix was a port that was maybe about 40 miles uh, west of where they were. Now, here's the situation. They've set out, they've already sailed uh, uh, probably 700 uh, to 800 miles by now. Only 40 miles the first 40 went as planned. After that, the weather has been deteriorating, the winds have gotten stronger, and all signs point to, man, the fall storms are, are, are going to begin to roll in. And so Paul says, look, we were blessed just to be able to get here uh, to uh, Fair Havens near La Lucille, near the shaggy place. We don't need to risk it, but because the, uh, uh, the centurion and the, and the ship's captain, they don't want to stay there, they want to get to Phoenix, which the, uh, uh, the city of Phoenix, that That word phoenix literally means palm trees. Now let me ask you this. If you have a choice of where you want to stay for four months, where do you want to be? In the shaggy place or among the palm trees? I mean, I, I, I have no idea what they, you know, what this place really looks like, but whatever it was, they had predetermined, there's no way we're spending the winter here at Fair Havens. We're going to go up to Phoenix where, you know, we're going to go up to Phoenix, the, 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 the more desirable port, and uh, we're going to be able to be, have entertainment. I don't know, maybe they pictured they could get, you know, some drinks with little umbrellas in it or something like that. Have no idea. All I know is that they did not want to stay in the shaggy place. They were determined to get to where they wanted to go. Why? Because that was their preference. It was going to be more enjoyable. It was going to be more pleasurable. Now, let me ask you this. How many times in life have we seen it to where when we determine and we preordain, I'm going to do X, Y, Z, no matter what the advice that I get. So here's Paul, an experienced, uh, 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 an experienced man of the sea. Not only that, he's a man of God and he gives sound counsel and advice they dismiss it and the reason why they dismiss it is because we're not staying here and being bored for the next 4 months i want to be entertained i want to cater to my preferences i want to have a good time and how many times uh, do people do that and then you find out you end up your life ends up in a storm the place that looks more desirable might be more desirable to our flesh but it's not the place that god has ordained and next thing you know you end up in a storm having to toss all your cargo overboard and that's what's about to happen here. Verse 13. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing they had obtained their aim or their purpose. In other words, uh, they had set forth that they're going to get to phoenix, and now they have an enticing, I love that, they have a, an enticing south wind. It's just begging them to come out. And so that's what they do. They weighed anchor and they sailed along creek close to the sh- uh, shore. But soon a tempestuous wind, a tempestuous wind, not not a strong breeze, but a tempestuous wind. When I think of the term tempestuous, I think about my kids when they were literally like two or three years old. You ever seen a tempestuous child, how they can just change the whole atmosphere of a house? This was a tempestuous wind, and it called called the Northeaster, and it struck down from the land. It was the very thing that Paul was warning them about. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land, and the ship was caught and could not face the wind. Why? Because it's not designed to be able to do that. We gave way and were driven along. That word, a uh, word driven, means they had to give up to the power of the storm, and they were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cahuta, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting that up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing we would want to ground on the Surtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. So, this is what's happening. They're in this tempestuous wind. It's a, uh, uh, it's a gale force kind of wind. They cannot uh, sail uh, where they want to go, so now they're being blown even further off course. They do everything they know to do. These, these experienced sailors uh, begin to use their ingenuity and begin to do things. You know, they, they begin to, uh, they, you know, they, they take the, the, uh, the ship's boat or what basically was the lifeboat the, the life and they secure it. Somehow they're able to get some supports to undergird the ship's hull so it doesn't break apart in the sea. So they're doing everything they can do in the power of their experience, their ingenuity, and their, and their strength. But guess what? It is no match for the storm. And when it says that they feared that it would run aground in the Surtis, the Surtis basically was an area of the Adriatic Sea where, where it would get a little more shallow and they had to worry about running aground on sandbars. Paul knew about all this. And then so it says. Verse 18, since we were violently storm-tossed, in other words, the boat is beginning to take on water, they had to lighten it, they began the next day to jettison the cargo and to begin tossing stuff overboard. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, no small tempest was laying on us, all hope of being saved was being, was abandoned." So the, uh, they, they're being violently storm-tossed, having to toss their cargo. When it says neither sun nor stars appeared, that's, talking, that, that's an important point because they use the stars to navigate. Now they can't, they can't see the stars. So they can't navigate. They can't plot where they're going. They don't know where they're going to end up. They've had to take the sails down and just allow the storm in the, in, the, in, the, in the sea to drive them along. So what's happening here is this, is that as the storm is moving, it's carrying the boat with it. So it's not like they can hoist a sail, sail against the wind, or sail perpendicular and get out of the storm. They, they, they are, as the storm's moving across the sea, it's just carrying them along with it. And it says that after this happened for many days, all hope of being saved was la- at last abandoned. They are hopeless. So here's what's happened. They set out the sail and the first 40 miles of the trip was nice. They had a plan that they were going to go from where they were to Rome, but Uh, uh, In the second leg of the journey, the ship was being buffeted by the winds and their plan got seized. And the uh, the further that they journeyed, the more devastating that the the storm became and has pushed them totally off course. The the ship, unable to sail into the storm, is being driven wherever the storm wants them to go. They are at the end of their strength. They've done everything that they need to do. Uh, uh, They've used their ingenuity, but there is no match for, what, uh, for the storm. They're in the middle of a storm and they've lost all control. They have zero control. Have you ever been in that place in your life where you felt like you ended up in a, in a storm and, the, and you can't see your way out? where you're in the, maybe in a, in a transition or a trial, and, they're in, and the circumstances are beyond your control, and no matter how smart you are, how ingenious you are, how many talents you have, how passionate or how bad you want something else, but because of the decisions that have been made either by yourself or by other people, you're now in a storm, and you're sort of like feeling like you're at the mercy of the storm. There's nothing more depressing than to feel like you have been pinned up in a box and you have no way out, but only for the enemy to pound on you, to pound on you with trial after trial, storm after storm, wave after wave. Think about these sailors, man. They are they've been on this boat for three days in the storm, and the only thing that they have for three days is darkness, wind. They have the waves lifting the boat up and then slamming it down, lifting the boat up and slamming it down. All hope is lost. And then Paul, in verse 21, stands up and he says this. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set self a creep and incurred this injury and loss. (laughs) I read that, man, I about fell in my chair. I was like, look at Paul, man. You know Paul ain't married. (laughs) The reason why I say that is because no husband, every husband in here knows you don't ever say to your wife, I told you. And <laughs> hey, so here's Paul, you know, it's like, you know, it, it sounds like he's gloating a little bit, a little I told, or told, or told you so kind of thing, but that, that's that's really not his intent, I think. But anyway, but his his intent here is this. I told you this before we left. Now what I told you was going to happen has happened. So now I'm going to tell you something else that's going to happen Maybe you should listen. So Paul has their attention. He's established his credibility. Look, I said this was going to happen. Now let me tell you what I'm seeing right now. Verse 22 says, yet now I urge you to take heart or take courage, for there will be no loss of life among you. He's trying to, he's encouraging. There will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. You're going to lose the ship, but you're not going to die. That's good news. Verse 23, for this very night, why can't he say this? For this very night, there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong, circle that, and to whom I worship, circle that. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be as I have been told but we must run aground on some island. Now, I'm going to summarize the rest of it. You know what happens right at that? So here, they, everybody's at the bottom, man. They, I mean, it, it's, it can't get any, can't get any worse, And so they thought. Paul stands up and he says, an angel of God appeared to me and, and, and told me, I got to be in Rome to, to, uh, to testify about him there. And he's also promised that no one's going to die. We're going to lose the ship, but nobody's going to die. I have faith in God. It's going to be exactly the way the Lord explained it to me. You know what happens after that? It does get worse. Because they're, they, after this, they are tossed by the sea for another 11 days. Now, you need to go and read the rest of the story. They're tossed in the sea for another 11 days. They end up having to toss everything overboard. They end up uh, 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 seeing uh, a place where maybe they can run aground they hoist a sail and, and, and they get stuck on a sandbar before they can reach the beach. The uh, surf is breaking the ship apart. Guys have to jump in the water and swim to the shore other guys are doing the Titanic grabbing a hold of pieces of wood and, and, and paddling to the shore but the result is this. All 276 people on board reach land safely but the ship is completely annihilated and everything they have is completely lost. And so the thing about all that is this, is that there are times you run into a storm and it feels like your ship gets shipwrecked. That's fine. Just don't let it shipwreck your faith. But what was it about Paul? You know, I want to talk about here in the last 15 or 20 minutes, I want to talk about what was it that that when Paul said, hey, I have faith in God nobody's going to be lost. No life is going to be lost. What was it that was anchoring his faith that allowed him to have such a courage and a conviction that it would be exactly as God, uh, as God showed him? And I'm going to talk about what, are those, what, are, what were those faith anchors? Because what we see out of this story is this, is that the faith that anchors you in the storm can also be the hook that reveals Christ to those around you. The faith that anchors you in the storm is also the hook that God uses to lead others to faith in Jesus. i want to talk about that for just a minute. So what was the first anchor? That first anchor was the anchor of God's presence. Paul stands up and he says this, Take heart, men. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the Lord God. This is the anchor of God's presence. Paul's faith was anchored in the reality of God's presence with him. He depended on the presence of God. From the very first that Paul encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, Paul learned that the defining and, and transforming thing was the presence of God. Paul has spent a lifetime learning the ro- rules of the law, learning the, uh, uh, the every iota of the scripture, but It had left his heart cold. It had left his heart embittered in these kinds of things. But as soon as he met the Lord Jesus, as soon as the presence of God appeared to him and called to him and said, Saul, Saul, Paul says, Saul says, Who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It said that the light shone all around Paul, and that light was the light of the glory of the presence of God. So Paul's life was converted by the presence of God. It's the same for anyone who comes to, 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 to truly know Christ as Savior. We believe in Him because we believe in His presence. Paul, uh, from that, from there on, the the presence of God just becomes a part of uh, of just Paul of who Paul is in his, in his daily life. We see in Acts chapter 18, Paul um, is in the, in the in the in the middle of being persecuted, and the Lord appears to Paul and tells Paul, "Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, for I." am with you. In Acts 23, when he's in Caesarea, it says that the Lord stands beside Paul and tells him, take courage for as you've testified of the facts about me in Jerusalem, you're also going to testify in Rome. And when he gets to Rome, Paul records and writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul said, I got to Rome, I was in prison there, and everybody abandoned me. But the Lord stood beside me and strengthened me. See, We have and we live under the promise that God's presence is always going to be with us. The Bible is one big story of God desiring to be present with his people. In the Garden of Eden, we see that God would come into the garden looking for Adam to be able to walk into fellowship and to commune with him. And uh, when we read the story of Moses... And we read about the deliverance of God's people out of Egypt and then they're wandering for 40 years in the, in the desert and then moving into the promised land. The one promise that they, had, that they uh, held on to was the promise of God's presence among them the Lord constantly tells Moses and the people of Israel that I will go before you. And he went before them in a a cloud and he went before them in a fire, you know, and when they were in the wilderness, they would set the tabernacle up where God's presence would reside. And they would set it up in the middle of the community. You know why they did that? Because the presence of God is to be the defining attribute of the community of God's people. I mean, it's great having coffee, it's great having lights. It's great having, you know, uh, comfort. You know, it's great to sort of be on the edge. It's great having swag. But the defining thing, we can have all of that, but if we don't have God's presence, we don't have anything. And one of the things that the last year has shown is that the church, and I'm speaking very generally right now, that in many ways the church in, in, in our country has shown itself to be a community of people about a lot of things, but unfortunately, in many ways, not about the presence of God. But the presence of God is our biggest, largest, and transforming dynamic that we have. Nobody else can manufacture the presence of God. We don't manufacture the presence of God. It's just inherently with us. So when the church tries to play on another plane and we try to make politics you know, or cultural influence or some other issue the way in which we're trying to engage community, we actually forfeit the very thing that is able to transform the hearts and minds of, uh, uh, of people and convince them that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. We are to be a community of God's presence. That's why when we come in here to worship together, there's two things. There's two ways to sing in church. They're singing to sing verses because it's the song service, and then they're singing to worship and honor the glory of God. One is a religious activity. The other one pierces through the natural realm, cuts through the storm clouds that are all around you, and gets you before the omnipotent one, the one who is able to save, the one who is able to deliver and save to the uttermost. God has promised that his presence would be with us always. In Hebrews 13, 5, uh, it says that we can be content in all circumstance because God will never leave you or forsake you. Matthew chapter 28, when the Lord is getting ready to ascend, just before he leaves, he, he makes this promise to his disciples. He says, look, I will be with you always to the end of the age. In John chapter 14, he promises us to give us the Holy Spirit. This is awesome. John chapter 14, verse 17. Jesus says, I'm gonna ask the Father and he's gonna give you another helper. And the spirit of truth, he's going to be with you and you will know him because he dwells with you and will be in you, be in you. Man, when you, when you look in the Old Testament and you see the presence of God come, uh, come on God's people, that's amazing and awesome. But you know the one thing they didn't have? They may have had God with them, but they did not have God in them. When we talk about coming into the presence of God, we're not talking about trying to extract and trying to get God to come down to us, like we're trying to pull him out of heaven or something like that. We're not looking for some supernatural experience. The fact of the matter is is that God is in us and dwells within us and dwells within the heart and the life of every believer 24 hours a day, every day of the year. He's with us. So sometimes it feels like, man, I just don't sense God's present. It feels like God's far from me, but the truth of the matter is it's not that God is far from us. It's just that we feel, feel far from God, and so what we need to do then is cult the habit of, of, of being sensitive to the presence of God, of leaning in to the presence of God. I like this terminology I picked up from Brandon, or living in to the presence of God, living into His grace, we don't have to manufacture it. We don't have to work for it. God's not waiting for you to quote, you know, 15 verses in a row and then, boom, here I am. His presence is always with us. Uh, in Acts chapter 1, uh, chapter one, we have the promise that not only will the presence be in us, but we'll be baptized or immersed in his presence. How do we cultivate the sense of God's presence in our life? And it's as simple as this. It's, the inten- it's, the, it's intentional devotion. Jesus made the habit of pulling away from the crowds. Y'all know this, of, of, of pulling away from the crowds. He would walk away from people who had real needs. But he would pull away because the more precious part was for him to get into a quiet place and seek the face of his father. We have the story of Mary and, uh, Mary and Martha where Martha was uh, 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 concerned about much business but uh, 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 But Mary would sit at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus said, man, she's chosen the, the good portion. When we create space in our life to seek God, what we tell God is that really what's most important to me is you. I got all this going on, I got, I got business going on, I got things to go, places to go, you know, people to see, I got, uh, uh, I got all these concerns I got with my, my household and, and the things of life, you know, in the parable of the sower, it says that the routines of life, the grind of life is what chokes out the word of God. But when we, when we create space, when we say, God, I, I have these concerns, I got work, I got responsibilities, I got to take the kids over here, I got this, and we actually carve out some time, you know, whether it's 15 minutes, whatever it is, and we actually carve out some time just to be with God. What we tell God is that uh, I, I'm prioritizing you. And when you go to our devotion, we're not just checking off, you know, religious exercises. It's really all about what... When you approach the Word of God and you approach your devotion, what mindset do we have? And we need to understand is that then when we, whenever we open up the Bible and we begin, begin to read it, it's our opportunity to sit at the feet of Jesus, to meet and have communion with our Savior, and to learn His ways, to learn and to be changed by His Spirit. When we pray, it gives us the opportunity to commune with Him and allow the Lord to speak to us, to encourage us by His Spirit. And allow us to talk to him, to roll our cares over to him. Jesus said, come all you who are heavy laden, come to me and find rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When we worship him, we enter into the presence of God as we begin to magnify his character. We begin to magnify his holiness, his goodness in in, uh, all of his power. See, when we have devotion, we're not just doing Bible study. We're not just reading. We're not just doing some kind of spiritual thing, it's the opportunity to step out of the natural and as soon as you open up the word of God, as soon as you begin to pray, you step out of the natural into the realm of the eternal and you stand before the presence of the Almighty One. So we lean into God's presence. C.S. Lewis says this, that God walks everywhere incognito and the incognito is not always, is not always hard to penetrate. I like to Penetrate. But the real labor is to remember to attend, to come awake, and to remain awake, to make it our priority. The second acre that, uh, that Paul had was that of belonging to God. He says, for this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong. Paul's faith was anchored in the reality that he knew he belonged to God. Now the scripture has different ways with which it describes the nature of our belonging. We talk about belonging a lot here, but the, 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 the Bible talks about how we belong to God like a bride and a groom belong to one another. The Song of Solomon says this, my beloved is mine and I am his. And there we see that we belong to God and it's an intimate belonging. The belonging between a husband and a wife. In John chapter 10, it says that we belong to God like sheep belong to the shepherd. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. We see that we belong to God as a, as a shepherd cares for the sheep. He's tender with the sheep and he, he leads them, uh, 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 he leads them to, to green pastures. We see the, the care and the love that God has for us. And then we belong to God like a child belongs to a father. John chapter 12 says this, is that, uh, that all who believe on Christ he gives the right to become children of God, not born of blood or the flesh, but of God. And, uh, you know, to me, this is, this is my favorite. I think about that, you know, when you think about the, the, the relationship between a, a son and a father, and I think about this because I had such a great relationship with my dad. Now, look, I realize that it's not the same for everybody. Um, but uh, 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 but here's, here's the thing, you know, with, with me and my father, my, my dad called me son more than he called me Charles. I think I mentioned before, I'm the youngest of eight kids. There are six boys, two girls, and rarely did my dad ever call us by name. And I think maybe, you know, it was just too many kids to keep up with or something. I don't know. But, um, but he, would, he, would, he would call me son. And there was just something about that, especially as I got older, it was said with such, uh, uh, it just, just with such affection. That, I, it, that, it, that when he would say it, it just would, there's something about it, it would just produce in me a sense of, of security and deep satisfaction and understanding that I'm, that I'm accepted and I'm, and I'm loved exactly for who I am. And, and he, he would just say, son, and I remember, you know, calling home, you know, back in the day when there was actually phones on walls that rang and you had to pick them up and say hello. You remember that? You know, back in the day when it wasn't rude to actually call somebody. You didn't have to, you, you know, didn't have to text them, say, hey, can you talk? You just called. And my dad never answered the phone. Never. My mom always answered the phone. And so she would pick it up, you know, and she's, oh, hey, Charles, how you doing, honey? And then I hear my dad from the, from the kitchen table yell out, hey, son, how you doing, son? And it's just like, that, that was his contribution to the, to the whole conversation. But that's all I needed to hear my dad call me son. And uh, it, it communicated to me such a deep sense of joy that he was pleased with me. Now my dad passed away 12 years ago. He was 87 years old, wasn't a shock when he passed. But what I wasn't ready for was that when he, when he passed, I had no idea what the loss of hearing somebody call me son and how that would impact me. And so it was like for me, it was like a it was like my belonging got uprooted in a natural sense. And for a long time, I just sort of felt twisted in the wind because when I had major decisions that I needed to talk about, I would talk to dad because he always had good wisdom. There were times I would, when I would go home and, and uh, we'd come in with all the kids to, uh, to visit and my dad would get up from the kitchen table, see me and just hold his arms out to me and just say, come here, son. We had this thing where we, were, where we would hug and linger and we would drop our hands and we just let just him, this is just our thing. And we would lean each other on, on just our weight and we would just stay there for a moment. And I was just, I'm just drinking it in, man. There's nothing like going home. Nothing like it. It was a place I would go and all the worries of the world would just drop off. Truly felt like a, a refuge. We'd sit down at the table, eat dinner, and then my dad and I would spend a couple of hours uh, uh, just talking. he said, son, how's it going? What's going on? And he would ask questions. We'd repeat the same thing at breakfast time. And it was just uh, uh, just a warmth and intimacy. And when I lost that, it was unsettling. But here's the great thing about belonging to God. That father-son relationship is eternal. God is our father and we are his children. See, when you know you're a child of God, a son of God, a daughter of God, when the storm hits you, you're not shipwrecked, even though the boat might be coming apart. Because it gives you a sense of stability. It gives you a root. It gives you a sense of confidence. It gives you uh, uh, the fact that you have a, uh, a, a deep belonging, that you are not your own, that God loves you so much that He sent His only begotten Son, that you were bought with the price of the blood of Jesus Christ. This kind of belonging doesn't fade or pass away. It's an identity and a belonging that goes stronger and stronger as we follow him. We become more rooted in his presence. We become more rooted in our in our in our sons. And, uh, and as a child to him. It produces in us during the storm a security, a deep satisfaction, and a value that nothing in this world can give you, a deep affirmation. And that becomes the source of your hope, that belonging in that, in that identity in the Father himself. We no longer are taking value out of the, the journey and how successful that it seems or the ship and the trappings that are around it, but our whole satisfaction is in the fact that the belonging anchors us to the Father. And the last point as as we close is this. The third anchor is this, is the anchor of serving. Paul says this, For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Literally the word worship there means to serve. To serve. Pastor Jason said something pretty profound here a couple weeks ago when he was preaching. He said this, I just want to quote it. He says, God's servants are immortal until their work is done. No servant of God dies of premature death. That's powerful. God's servants are immortal until the work is done. No servant of God dies of premature death. See, when you live your life with the reality that you're not just called to, but you're called for, you live with a sense of divine purpose each and every day. That gives you confidence in the times of transitions, trials, and storms. And listen. As long as you keep on breathing, <laughs> walking this planet, I don't want to suck all of the joy out of the room. But let me tell you, transition, trial, and storms are coming. Jesus told, tells us that he said there's two ways you can build your spiritual house. You can build it on the sand, or you can build it on the, or you can build it on upon the rock. And the reason why you want to build it on the rock is because when the storms come and pound on your house, you want your house to stand. Paul lived his life with this sense of divine appointment that he was called for something. And throughout the book of Acts, he uses these words. He says in Acts 20, I am constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. It doesn't matter what's coming at me, but the Spirit constrains me. I must go. In Acts chapter 22, he says this, Uh, uh, that when he was converted, he's testifying about his conversion, that Jesus said, you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. In Acts 23, he says, I have a duty to God. And then further on in that chapter, he says, I must testify in Rome. Look, Look at these words, constrained, assigned, duty, must. These are, these are not choices. This is, the, this is the divine commissioning of the Father on his life. And that not only applies to Paul, but it applies to each and every one of us. You've been called to God, you've been called by God for something. I'm not sure where this modern Christianity has come up where people get to decide that, hey, I'm going to do what I want to do, go where I want to go, see who I want to see, be who I want to be, and then just ask God to bless it on the back end. That's not the gospel. The gospel says that our lives have been bought with a price. The apostle Paul says this in Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God. And it's this faith, knowing that the call of God is on my life, that I have an assignment, that I can stand up in the midst of a storm where you have 276 men who are fearing for the life, and I can stand up confidently and say, men... Take heart. Be encouraged. I know God has called me to Rome, so guess what? We're all going to get there safely. This courage isn't uh, 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 Paul being presumptuous or confident in himself. It's the confidence and the faith that comes with living in the presence of God, knowing that he's a son of God and belongs to God, and know that God has given him a specific purpose on his life. So my question is to you, what is it that you must do? I must be a husband to Angie. I must be a father to Caleb, Caitlin, and Abigail. I must sow my life for the encouragement of others. I must. This is, I'm, not, uh, 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 I'm not exaggerating here. I, why am I at Redemption Hill? Because I must be at Redemption Hill. Why? Because God called my wife and I to be here. What are the, what are the uh, you know, uh, my wife knows that she must be a teacher. What, you must be an engineer. But why? What, what, what is the point? Is it just into doing it? No, Paul was called to say, you must go to Rome that you may testify. So everything that you do, your responsibilities, your job, whatever it is that you're doing on your day-to-day, you serve God in that, and it's as worship to Him. The key, then, is to finding out if God's called you to be a business owner, He's called you to be a nurse, He's called you to, uh, you know, to be a consultant, whatever, whatever it is, is then how is God calling you to testify in that position? Find your must. Well, I'm not sure how to find it. Let me, let me tell you how to find it. Live in His presence. Be secure in your sonship. He'll make it clear. And the key to this whole story is this, though, and we're closing. Is that Paul's faith wasn't just confidence for him, but it hooked the other 276. And when everything was lost, when they had pitched all their stuff into the sea, when they finally cut away the the, the lifeboat and they cut away the anchors, here's the purpose of storms. The purpose of storms in our life is this. For the believer, the purpose of the storm is to transform us into the image of God by us learning to lean in to, uh, to the presence of God that he may transform us by his spirit. The purpose of storms then is not only that, but it's also for our faith to arise so that others may believe. All 276 got to the shore, and they got there safely. And they got there because Paul's felt, Paul's faith stayed anchor in the middle of the storm. And when they finally all got to the shore, I can guarantee you, I can't can't say if all ended up in faith in Christ, but there was only one who could get the glory for all of them surviving, and that was the omnipotent one, the all-loving one, the graceful one, and the holy one. There's no greater testimony than for when we are able to navigate the storms of life through faith in Jesus. Let's pray.